Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Mathematics, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Corey Brunson, a host of the channel, and I'm talking today with James D. Stein, author of The Fate of Schrodinger's Cat, Using Math and Computers to Explore the Counterintuitive, published by World Scientific Press this year, 2020. For a while, when I was a graduate student, I thought of pure math as rigorous common sense. Every calculation performed and every theorem proved once I had a handle on its component steps, made such eminent sense that I couldn't unsee it. Jim's book reminds me that math can lead to some very counterintuitive results. But more importantly, it reminds me that these results are no less real, and that this reality would defy our intuition with or without the aid of the computational sciences to navigate them. The chapters range from hard choices to flights of fancy, and I'm honored to be able to discuss them with the author. Jim, welcome to the podcast. Corey, thanks so much for inviting me. Thank you very much for joining uh, the show that we co-host separately, but are finally in the same episode together on. Looks that way. So to begin in traditional New Books Network fashion, could you say a bit about your mathematical background and how you came to write this book? Okay, well, I went to college, majored in math. Um, decided that I liked math, and when I got an offer from the University of California at Berkeley to go to grad school, I thought I might like California. So I went out there, got my doctorate, 50 years later, still in mathematics, still in California, and still find mathematics fascinating. And when I was a mathematician, uh, I taught at California State University, Long Beach, and UCLA. I did a lot of research, but the research that I did was in very structured areas, And after I retired, you sort of find that your ability to do really cutting-edge mathematics is gone, or at least it had with me. And I was still interested in mathematics, and a friend of mine, Lynn Wapner, showed me a very, very fascinating result, which we're going to come to later in the conversation, called Blackwell's Bet. Blackwell's bet deals with probability. And like most mathematicians, I knew something about probability and statistics, but it wasn't a research area of mine, and I think I taught maybe a couple of low-level courses in it. So uh, I started looking at it, and it turned out that probability is one of the most counterintuitive and fascinating areas of mathematics. And the book essentially describes um, uh, some of the results that I saw while I was doing these investigations. Um, Some of them are known. Some of them I think I probably, you know, I probably investigated earlier than anybody. But it's fascinating material, and I thought it would make a good book, and that's why I wrote it. Now, when we say that a book makes mathematics accessible, we often mean that the author's done a good job of explaining complex ideas, and I agree that you have. Um, It also relies, your book, on extremely accessible tools, namely the basic rules of arithmetic and probability. So as you wrote the chapters, what readership did you have in mind? Um, Well, when I wrote another book, um, uh, the editor of the uh, 
of the publishing house told me that it's a good idea to sort of aim the, this type of book for somebody who's had some mathematics, but probably not calculus. Um, although you can certainly use calculus in an appendix in the book, um, as soon as you start doing it, cuts down the readership fantastically. And that's fortunate because the book that I wrote, it basically requires arithmetic, a little probability, and maybe some high school algebra. And that's all you really need to understand it from a mathematical sense. But understanding it in terms of wrapping your head around what all it all means, that requires, you know, that's on a different level entirely. And quite frankly, even though I consider myself a well-trained mathematician, having spent 50 or 60 years in it, some of the results are so intriguing that I'm still not sure that I understand them. But that's, of course, what makes research fun. Um, one of the people that we'll encounter uh, during the course of this conversation is an individual named David Blackwell. And I'll talk a little bit about him later. Um, I think it comes up during the interview. But David Blackwell said something that's extremely important. He, he was a very, very famous mathematician. And he says, I'm not interested in research. I'm interested in understanding. And these two are not always the same thing. That is a very interesting quote. I don't remember if you included it in the book, but it sounds like the kind of thing the character of Blackwell, as I read in the book, would have said. Oh, yeah, no question that uh, no question that he did. A very interesting individual. When the time comes, I can tell you a little bit about him. Yes, we're definitely going to touch on Blackwell here in the as we discuss the first section of the book, which uh, let's get into. Section one uses by hand calculations to ease us into the realm of the counterintuitive. You acknowledge that even mathematical proof may not be absolute or eternal, and I'd like to just mention this resonates with my own research experience. Um, but do you have any words of encouragement for new explorers of mathematics who may find themselves confronted on one side by the sheer rigor of the process and on the other side by the counterintuitive conclusions that they reach? Um, well, I think that there are a bunch of different levels of mathematical research that can be performed. One of them is the stuff that's done by academic mathematicians, and that usually requires uh, a number of years of training, an advanced degree, and also you have to read very specialized material. But it's possible to investigate problems without having a research background if all they do is intrigue you. Because mathematics is a language, and it's a language for dealing with quantitative phenomena. And lots of the problems that arise, or at least that I find that arise in my world anyway, are questions that can be phrased quantitatively. And usually they're not questions that involve, um, involve deep mathematical theorems. It's more can you express these problems mathematically? And do you have some sort of tools with which to investigate them? Now, admittedly, sometimes we see problems that are, you know, we can tell pretty quickly, maybe just doing a Google search, that this is a problem that's been looked at, requires pretty high power mathematics. But sometimes you think to yourself, I can do this. I can think about this. And one of the things uh, I think you mentioned earlier that uh, uh, without the aid of the computational sciences, one of the things that I wanted to do in this book is stress how valuable computers are for exploring ideas that are numerical or quantitative. And 
All you really need to be able to do that is to understand how to phrase a problem mathematically and be able to write in some, I think of simple computer languages like the ones I learned. I learned BASIC and FORTRAN and stuff like that. And I haven't gone on to the the high-powered computer languages that are used nowadays to do all the stuff that I do because basically... If all you want to do is investigate quantitative problems, the computer computer languages from the 1960s are more than good enough. And they're easy to learn. And if you know algebra, they're easy to learn. Yeah, that is a good point. I also wanted to flag this comment you made. You uh, called mathematics the language of quantitative phenomena. And I recently had challenged this view uh, of mathematics as a sort of universal language. And I think I now think of that phrasing as kind of problematic, but I do really like this alternative view of what that kind of language mathematics is. Well, let me jump into the... I'm sorry, go ahead. uh, Go ahead if you wanted to respond to that. Oh, okay. Well, uh, I I remember once that uh, uh, that I was reading about some eminent mathematician who tried to analyze poetry and lots of luck. <laughs> there are certain phenomena that even though mathematics may well be able to describe it at some stage in the future, it's a long ways away. And although of all the sciences, we've probably been going at mathematics more than any other because it's got like a 2,500 year history of research in it. Nonetheless, I think that um, as it stands at the moment, it's limited to dealing with I won't say quantitative phenomena exclusively because there are things, there are branches of mathematics like set theory and logic, which look at other structures than purely the quantitative or the geometric or the topological. But that at the moment is what, that's what mathematics is good at. And um, I don't know, do you ever read Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy? I have. I loved the books when I read them as a kid. I, I read I them as them a, a little bit too. less, I guess, as an adult. But yes, I have read them. Okay, you remember what he talks about in the book? Is he talks about a mathematical theory of history not yes, happening history, for correct. the yeah not happening for the foreseeable future? Um, at least as as far as I can tell, mathematics does a really great job of doing what it does a really great job with. But there's some stuff that is so incredibly complex that we're just not yet able to deal with it. And we may never be able to deal with it because that is one of the profound consequences of some of the mathematics of the 20th century. It basically says there are mathematical questions that mathematics itself may not be able to answer. And if there are mathematical questions that mathematics can't answer, boy, there got to be a whole lot of other <laughs> questions that mathematics can't answer either. That is well said. So let's get into the content of um, section one. Many listeners are no doubt familiar with the Monty Hall problem, and you've discussed it in detail in your earlier interviews with Alfred Passementier. Could you describe the problem as mathematicians have studied it? and perhaps provide your favorite way to understand its solution. Okay, well, I'm not sure how mathematicians have studied it, because when the problem was first posed to a wide audience, which it was in uh, Marilyn Vosavant's column entitled Ask Marilyn, she got a whole lot of letters from professional mathematicians, and it turned out that there was a split. Some mathematicians thought one thing, some mathematicians thought another. So let me just Mm -hmm. briefly state what the problem is. 
Um, uh, Monty Hall was the host of the show Let's Make a Deal. And the framework is that in virtually uh, in virtually any quiz show, um, contestant wins some money, host tries to persuade the contestant to risk some or all of that money for a larger prize. So that's what's going on here. So um, what's happening is that uh, the contestant's gotten to a point where he wins a prize and Monty shows him three doors and says, there's a car behind one of these three doors. Which door do you choose? And the contestant says, door two. And Monty, who obviously knows where the car is, opens door one, shows that contestant, you know, shows the contestant that there's no door behind the car, no car behind the door, and says, would you like to switch to door three? And so the question is, should you or shouldn't you? And um, it turns out that the, there's a very, very good reason for switching. And the basic idea is that when you choose a door, you've divided the set of three doors into two distinct sets, the door that you choose and every other door. And so you can sort of intuitively see that it's more likely to be behind the other two doors one of the other two doors, then it is behind yours. And the way I like to explain it when I'm talking about this to people who are interested is, instead of three doors, imagine that there are a thousand doors. You choose door two. Monty opens door three, door four, door five, through door thousand, takes him a while, no car. Then asks you if you want to switch. Presumably there's one of those remaining doors that Monty doesn't open. There's one of the remaining doors that Monty doesn't open. Well, originally you had one chance in a thousand that you opened the correct door. Do you think it's changed? No. And uh, that's the way that I th- that's the way that I think of the problem. And it turns out that there are lots of variations that you can ring on this theme. Uh, you can make the problem a little more uh, a little more complicated um, by bringing in some conditions that are extraneous to this problem. But nonetheless, the basic idea is that a lot of people have a really hard time with the original three-door problem simply because it looks like, hey, it's either behind this door or it's not, 50-50. But it's not a 50-50 choice. And that's one of the prevailing themes of the book is that there are a bunch of problems which appear to be 50-50 choices, but which really aren't. And the Monty Hall is a very good and easy-to-understand way of getting into this type of problem. I agree it is. And in fact, I hadn't come across that um, conceptualization of the solution before and very much enjoyed it. How did you did? Sorry, go ahead. No, that was it. Okay. So in chapter two, um, you introduce the core idea of this section, probabilistic entanglement. Um, The idea really takes off in subsequent chapters, but how would you introduce it? Um, I first came across the idea and the idea of calling it probabilistic entanglement because I have a teeny bit of familiarity with quantum mechanics. Um, I took a course in quantum mechanics when I was minoring in physics in in college, but to say... I have basically no understanding of quantum mechanics other than what a non-specialist who's done a little reading would. 
Um, but nonetheless, there's an idea called entanglement in quantum mechanics. And the idea that I was bringing up in the section on probabilistic mechanic, uh, probabilistic entanglement is that there's a general class of, uh, I don't know what you would call them, experiments, which are called Bernoulli trials. And Bernoulli mm-hmm. trials are characterized by two things. There are only two different outcomes which we call success and failure. One would be flipping a coin. You might say success is heads, failure is tails. Rolling a die, success is a three, failure is anything else. Things like this. But there are a lot of success-failure experiments that take place in the real world. For instance, we've just seen a huge one, the trial of the coronavirus vaccines. Success or failure? Do they work in an individual or do they not? And the other requirement is that one trial of this one play has to be independent of all the others. Namely, when you flip a coin and you get a heads, it doesn't influence the results on the next flip. When you roll a die and you get a three or not, it doesn't influence the rolls of the, uh, of the next rolls of the die. And when you inject a Uh, the vaccine into one person and you get a success or failure, that doesn't influence success or failure in any of the other people. But it turns out that if you were to take two different Bernoulli trials, and the ones that I use in uh, the ones that I use in the book are the percentage of people in Cleveland who have type O blood and the probability of a rainy day in London. Now, these are two absolutely unrelated phenomena, or at least, you know, it would require a really weird, pheno- a weird explanation of the universe for these two to be related. But mm-hmm. suppose you were to ask yourself the following question, which is more likely, a random person in Cleveland, Ohio is type O blood, or a random, random day in London is rainy? Looks like a 50-50 question off the top of your head. And as I said, 50-50 questions are uh, one of the major themes of the book. Um, So what it turns out is there's a very intriguing way to make it a more than a 50-50 guess. Here's what you do. You flip a coin and you say to yourself, if the coin lands heads, I'm going to look at the blood type of a random person in Cleveland. If the coin lands tails, I'm going to look at the uh, weather on a random day in London and see whether it rained or not. So let's suppose that the coin landed heads and you're looking at the uh, the probability, you're looking at a random person in Cleveland and you ask whether or not they have type O blood. If they have type O blood, you guess that the probability of type O blood in Cleveland is greater than the probability of a rainy day in London. If they don't have type O blood, you guess that the probability of a rainy day in London is greater than the probability of a random person in Cleveland having type O blood. And it turns out that by using this technique and this strategy for guessing, you have a better than 50-50 chance of guessing which probability is, is more likely. And here was the first thing that is so counterintuitive to me about this entire topic. You can't just say to yourself, I'm going to look at a rainy day in London, or I'm going to test a person in Cleveland, Ohio. You have to flip that coin and give your chance, give yourself the chance of looking at either one 
of those two uh, of those two experiments, whether in London or blood type in Cleveland. And the reason that you have to comes down to the mathematics, of course, and it's why I talked about probabilistic entanglement, because this act of flipping the coin entangles two disparate related, or two disparate unrelated probabilities, probability of type O blood in Cleveland, probability of a rainy day in London. And they're entangled by this weird third, uh, you know, this weird out of the blue flip a coin to determine which one you look at. And that's what I think of as probabilistic entanglement. And probabilistic entanglement underlies um, the concept of Blackwell's bet that you then get into next in this section, and which is sort of, which I think of as the star of this um, section and that the ideas really solidify, especially with some very helpful diagrams that, again, bring out the, bring a little bit of intuition into our ability to understand how this flip of a coin can connect these two otherwise unrelated probabilities. Before we discuss Blackwell's bet, could you introduce David Blackwell himself? You spoke about him earlier, but I was not familiar with the man or his work. And I think his story could stand to be better known. Yes, I do too. And David Blackwell turned out to have been a professor of statistics at the University of California at Berkeley, where I did my graduate studies in mathematics. And he was there when I was there, and I never heard of him. And I never heard of him until uh, until I started looking at this material. <laughs> and as his story really deserves to be well known because uh, a lot of people saw the movie a few years ago, Hidden Figures. And one of the chief characters in Hidden Figures just passed away recently, a woman named Katherine Johnson. Katherine Johnson was a black woman from West Virginia, amazingly brilliant individual. She received a bachelor's degree in mathematics from West Virginia University, graduated summa cum laude in the 1930s at age 18. So you know this woman was brilliant. And David Blackwell was born almost the same year as Katherine Johnson. I think he was born a year later. He was black also. He was also born in a small town. The small town was Illinois. And he thought he'd become an elementary school mathematics teacher. That was his choice of career. But it turned out that, you know, early on, his brilliance showed. He went to college. He went to graduate school. And he was, uh, in the late 1930s, he was given a Rosenwald Fellowship to the Institute of Advanced Studies at Princeton. And Rosenwald scholarships were available to minority students at the time. And it was specifically for, you know, with the intent of bringing them into the mainstream. Well, when Blackwell went to Princeton, he was forbidden to attend lectures because he was black. And this is the late 1930s. Um, just, just absolutely obscene. Um, but nonetheless, he managed to make a few contacts. He then went to the University of California at Berkeley, where the leading statistician of the period, a guy named Jersey Naiman, argued passionately for Blackwell to be added to the faculty. And Berkeley wouldn't have him. He was black. So he went down south, became chair of the mathematics department down south, and 10 years passed, the civil rights movement took place, and all of a sudden, 
Berkeley realized that they could accept Blackwell. They offered him a position. He became a tenured full professor, <clears throat> brilliant statistician. As a matter of fact, David Blackwell was the first black to be admitted to the National Academy of Sciences, and very few mathematicians are. So just a tribute to the remarkable brilliance of the man. And um, he lived a long, brilliant, and happy life. And the result that, um, well, I didn't call it Blackwell's Bet. Len Wapner, who introduced me to it, calls it Blackwell's Bet, is one of the most out-of-the-blue things that I've ever seen in my entire life. And that's what got me started on this entire uh uh, on this entire, all the investigations that are talked about in the book. But here's what Blackwell's bet is. Yes. Um, and it's one of those apparently 50-50 choice type situations. And um, you'll recognize its similarity to probabilistic entanglement, I think, when I present the problem. There are two envelopes, each of which contain a sum of money. You choose one and open it, and you look at it. You, look, you count the amount of money in it, and then you are offered the choice of whether or not to keep the amount of money in that envelope or to switch and take the amount of money in the other envelope, which you haven't opened yet, otherwise there's no problem. Well, we'll throw out the case where there's only a penny in the envelope, in which case you're not going you're to you're gonna switch, or there's a million dollars in the uh, in the envelope, in which case you retire and do whatever it is that you want to do. And let's just assume that these are just random numbers. So you see a random number, and you want to know, is there a way to make the decision of whether I should stay or switch in such a way to give you more than a 50-50 chance? And this was Blackwell's contribution. He said, grab some random number from anywhere. Look at the, you know, look at your, look at your watch. Uh, find the temperature in degrees Fahrenheit, something like that. Just grab any random number and compare it to the amount of money in the envelope. And if it's less than the amount of money in the envelope, keep that envelope and if it's more than that amount, than the amount of money in that envelope, switch to the other envelope. And amazingly enough, and the mathematics is not hard to follow, it's just, it's first semester high school algebra and a little bit of probability theory, you can follow it, and you have more than a 50-50 chance. It's just brilliant, and it was one of the most counterintuitive things I'd ever seen in my life. And that's what got me started, and I still think... Uh, I think of all of various different types of things that I investigated in relation to this, and they're all just, you know, they're all just fascinating and counterintuitive. And among the, the ways you look into the possible uses of Blackwell's bet, um, as in other areas of the book, is whether you can use it to beat the odds in sports, be sports betting, which I thought was a fun uh, concept to return to recurringly in the, in the text. Um, and I think the insight you gained may be worth talking through. Can you take us through that pro the process you went through through simulation and analogy? Sure. And sure. Well, yeah, Nita, um, I've been over the. Uh, I've always been interested in sports, and because people, not, some of my friends who were sports betters, knew I was a mathematician. I've been hired a couple of times to see whether or not I could find a way to beat sports betting. And the answer is, I couldn't. That doesn't mean that it can't be done. And for all I know, it can be done mathematically. 
but I couldn't do it. Um, and I suspect that I, I suspect that it's going to be really hard because, uh, quite frankly, if you take a look look at something just as simple as the line in you know betting the line in football games. Um, Las Vegas does very well, and so what I did was I got a hold of the database of all the college football games that were played during like a 40-year period or something like that, and I looked at um, the actual results versus the line, and roughly 50% were... Uh, 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 50% were over the line. If you looked at the home team, the home team won 50, 50% against the line and lost 50% against the line. Anything like that. And But I thought Blackwell's bet might give you an edge. So I ran a simulation with Blackwell's bet and also included the fact that if you make a bet with a bookie or, you know, at a... At a uh, well, I'm not sure that there's the neighborhood bookie anymore, but if you make a bet with an online casino, you have to pay 11 to 10 if you lose. And it turned out that Blackwell's bet was no help at all. So I thought about this, and I realized that what I had, it was the same type of situation. The reason the betting, uh, trying Blackwell's bet to beat the line was exactly the same type of situation that I discussed earlier when looking at um, looking at probabilistic entanglement, it's not just enough to say, oh, it's easier to look at whether or not a random day was rainy in London. I'll just grab my database and look at that. You have to have some method of allowing for both possibilities. And in this case, the two possibilities are the outcome and the line. And you have to have two different, you have to have the possibility of being able to look at the outcome and decide about the line, just like looking at the line, rather than just simply looking at the line and using Blackwell's technique for for selecting the outcome. So if nothing else, what it did was it solidified my understanding of what the mechanism is that uh, makes Blackwell's bet effective. The remaining chapters in this section build a number of variations on this theme we've been discussing, and the one I think we're obligated to touch upon in our conversation is the fate of Schrodinger's cat. So for those who aren't familiar, what was the original thought experiment? Okay, well, this was one of Schrodinger's brilliant, you know, Schrodinger, by the way, was a tremendously brilliant scientist. Um, But what he did was... um, he was trying to get people to realize that there's something very odd about a lot of phenomena, a lot of subatomic phenomena. A lot of subatomic phenomena are not determined until you make a measurement. They exist in a sort of uh, in a sort of half uh, in a sort of netherworld state. I discussed this with a friend of mine who's a physicist. And uh, for instance, something like um, whether a radioactive atom has decayed. And a radioactive atom has a probability of decay. It doesn't just, it doesn't come with a label saying I'm going to decay or not decay. If you were to look at, um, if you were to look at a radioactive material with a half-life of one hour, if you pick a random atom, it's got a 50-50 probability of decaying within that, you know, before the hour is up. 
And what Schrodinger did was, um, he said, imagine that what we do is we put a cat in a box along with a mechanism that contains a vial of poison gas. And that poison gas will be released into the box if the radioactive atom decays and if the radioactive and that's going to kill a cat and if the radioactive atom doesn't decay the cat gets to live so schrodinger asked the question um the hours up is the cat dead or alive and the answer that quantum mechanics gives is that the cat is half dead half alive and you won't know until you open the box and of course this is bizarre beyond belief because you know, the cat is, you know, we all know intuitively that the cat is either dead or alive. Um, but that's not, Schrodinger wasn't ta- really talking about the cat in this. He's talking about the radioactive atom, which is the mechanism for determining whether the cat is dead or alive. And essentially, the cat is the Geiger counter, which tells us whether or not the radioactive radioactive atom has decayed or not and you simply don't know it's got a 50 50 probability and that's all you can say about it until you look so that's the original schrodinger's cat experiment and um it occurred to me while i was looking at this and while i was looking at blackwell's bed is that what you can do is you can modify this experiment And you can modify this experiment so that the following happens. A radioactive atom decays with a probability of 50-50 whether it decays or not. But you can set up the experiment in such a way that even though you don't know whether the atom has decayed or not, you can predict whether the cat is dead or alive and do so with a better than 50-50 probability. And the fact is that it's sneaky. The experiment that I devised is sneaky for the following, in the following reason. <clears throat> the experiment that I devised does not use radioactive atoms which have, a ha- ha- uh, which have a 50-50 probability of decaying. What it does, it uses two different types of atoms, one of which has a two-thirds probability of decaying, the other of which has a one-third probability of decaying, and you flip a coin to determine which atom you use. Now, over the long run, the atom that you choose will have a 50-50 probability of decaying, and there's no getting around that but you can set up the experiment in such a way that you will be able to predict with probability more than 50-50, in other words, better than the 50-50 chance, whether or not the atom has decayed, much as you can use the same type of, whether or not you can use the same type of result to uh, show that you have probabilistic entanglement between the people in Cleveland with type O blood and the rainy days in London or the two envelopes in the Blackwell's bet type scenario. You can use the same type setup, but because probabilistic entanglement in the, uh, in the scenario that I use is not something familiar to anyone until I invented that example. And the, uh, the example of Blackwell's bet 
was only really why widely known and uh, uh, widely known a few years ago when it became you know when it became uh uh, when somebody wrote about it in the book, Len Watner called it Blackwell's Bet, but I think he found it in another book, but almost nobody knew about it. So I couldn't really use uh, the probabilistic entanglement scenario that I devised to publicize it. Blackwell's Bet, I loved it, but it's not no, it's not so well known. But Schrodinger's cat, everybody knows it. Or even if they don't know exactly what they is, what it is. Almost anybody who's done any reading on anything whatsoever has heard the term Schrodinger's cat. So if nothing else, I figured if I use the word Schrodinger's cat in the title, people might pick up the book. And <laughs> it's a short step from picking up a book to buying it. And, and actually that, that connects to um, some a comment I thought I was going to make here where Schrodinger's cat is a thought experiment that's very useful for helping us understand the, the oddities of quantum mechanics. Um, your modified experiment, while it's maybe unnecessarily complicated to get the idea across in this specific setting, um, has implications, I think, for understanding investigator the importance of investigator blinding in lab experiments, which I know can come across as unnecessary or... Um, uh, uh, prohibitive um, or just irritating in some cases. But uh, in addition to the stories we tell of specific experiments that have been undermined by the failure to blind, having a nice mathematical argument that illustrates it in a very controlled um, example uh, would be a nice uh, companion, I think. Um, earlier, uh, uh, I don't know, about 20 or 30 years earlier, I had an opportunity to do some reading about the Salk vaccine. And I happened to take place during the, uh, I happened to be a part of the Salk vaccine trials because I was just the right age at the right time. And I read that the following took place, that in order to make sure that the, that the people who were doing the investigation were blind, the, short, the original Salk vaccine was painful. Um, it was, you know, not the process of injecting, but the the vaccine itself elicited a pain reaction from, uh, I mean, you know, people weren't, you know, weren't falling down on the floor with agony, but nonetheless, it was more, you know, more painful than some, uh, than some shots you get. And so what they deliberately did was they made the placebo equally painful so that the investigator who gave the shot didn't somehow didn't somehow know about this and contaminate some of the results from the experiment. So yeah, elaborate blinding of the investigator is exceptionally important. And here was an example that impacted you know impacted an awful lot of people. And I hope they're doing something the same in the coronavirus trials here. Indeed. And and just to make the just to make the point solid, I don't think um, we mentioned this, but part of the reason that you're able to beat the odds in this Blackwell's bet version of the Schrodinger's cat experiment is that the the person making the bet has some knowledge about the placement, about the experimental setup, other than which way the coin flip went. Yes, that is true, and that's um, uh, that's necessary. And if you look at the mathematics, I, uh, the mathematics, as I said, is not exceptionally difficult when you look at it, but it, it's something that you're not really comfortable explaining when you don't have, you know, when you, when you can't really write it down. But right. nonetheless, um, nonetheless, 
if you take a look at, um, at the Blackwell's bet scenario that I described, what you have is you have a comparison that you can make, a comparison between the random number and the number in the envelope which you've observed. And you have to be able to do something like that. And that's actually a placement of a sort. What I did when I wrote the book is I described the, uh, I described the uh, two boxes, one containing uh, the radioactive atom of two-thirds, two-thirds probability of decay, one-third probability of decay, as having been placed in a particular way in the, uh, on the table. But nonetheless, you can do the same thing um, with temperature as long as you always said, okay, the two-thirds one always has to be placed in the warmer box, something like this. So there has to be some way to make a comparison. And uh, uh, the setup, it's not, you know, it, it's a combination of things that makes the Schrodinger's cat experiment predictable. It's not just, it, there are two factors at work. One is the actual setup, that there are two envelopes in the Blackwell's bet, and the second, that you can make a comparison between a random number and an, ob- an observation of the experiment. Right. So let's jump into, chap- into section sorry, two, where you introduce computer simulation into these explorations. Again, before diving into the chapters, could you say a bit about the role you see simulation playing in mathematics, especially outside of what I tend to think of as its natural home in statistics? Um, Okay, uh, first of all, I got into simulation, as I said, I learned learned about computer programming in the 1960s, and I bought one of the first home computers, and I was delighted to see that they'd included a random number generator in the in the programming language with this home computer, which was some variation of BASIC in the 1970s, um, because that enabled you to do simulations. And lots of times there are problems that are so complicated that even if you were to be able to come to an adequate mathematical description of the problem, the mathematical solution of the problem would be impossibly difficult. And this happens time and again in the physical sciences. For instance, if you were to take a look at, uh, uh, at something in cosmology, they look at how do galaxies evolve. Well, good God, I mean, a galaxy is a hundred, you know, is billions of stars all interacting with each other. There's just no way you could work it. They can't even work out the three-body problem to say nothing of the billion-body problem. So what you just have to do is you just have to put a bunch of, you know, you have to put a bunch of uh, abstract dots with a relationship to other and let things happen mathematically and see what happens from a probabilistic standpoint. And there are a whole bunch of problems like this. In fact, in the second section of the book, which I get into, and I don't think we're going to have much time for anything other than that section of the book because, uh, you know, we're, we're sort of getting to, uh, getting to the point at which these interviews normally end. But I think computer simulation is extremely important. And if you know it, you can answer questions for yourself. And it doesn't require much mathematics to set up some of these simulations. They're pretty straightforward, and some of the results that you get are really interesting. I remember I'm, um, I'm a tennis fan, 
And one of the things that uh, um, I've noticed over the years is that uh, if, uh, if you watch tennis, you don't have to be a tennis fan to know that there are three really great men, male players at the moment, Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and Novak Djokovic. And they win, they've won an unbelievable number of tournaments. And so you might ask yourself, how much better are they than their opponent? Because you look at everybody else. When you see two, uh, you know, when you see the number 80 tennis player in the world playing the number 100 tennis player in the world, these people are pretty darn good. In fact, if you were to look at them, you'd say, Good grief, these are among the best tennis players in the world. So you would ask the question, how much better are they um, on a point-by-point basis than, uh, uh, than the people that they play against? And what is known is, no, I don't think anybody's compiled statistics on that, or at least I wasn't able to find it. But you are able to see such things as, if you look at the big three, Nadal, Federer, and Djokovic, they win 85% of their matches against everybody else. So you could, you knowing how tennis is scored, if you know the way that tennis is scored, points make games, games make sets, sets make matches. It's very easy to ask yourself, well, suppose that someone wins 51% of the points, how likely are they to win the match? If someone wins 52% of the points, how likely are they to win the match? If someone wins 53% of the points, how likely are they to win the match? And just offhand, if you were to even, probably if you were to look at the most experienced tennis coach in the world, they could not tell you that. But so what I did was I wrote a simulator for that. And here was something that is absolutely fascinating to me. You might think, okay, you need to win 55% of the points to be a really good player. Not true. If you win 51%, you're you're a good player. If you win 52%, you're a champion. And if you win 53%, you're a legend. And I found that fascinating. I mean, it, you know, it's not of any significance, but it's extremely useful because, hey, here's a problem that is not difficult to describe. You don't really need to know much mathematics to be able to set it up. All you need to do is know how tennis is scored, a little bit about computer programming, and you can answer this question for yourself. And there are lots of numerical and other questions which occur in everyday life, which somebody with a little knowledge of probability, little knowledge of algebra, a little knowledge of computer programming can just sit back and have a whole lot of fun. Like virtually, there are a lot of probabilistic investigations in the book. Um, Things that I, for instance, when I wanted to see whether or not Blackwell's bet could be applied to uh, sports betting, um, when I wanted to see whether or not the results that I was getting on the Schrodinger's cat problem, whether or not theoretically they jibed with um, the results that I would get if I would simulate it. And a lot of times you can also use computers to give you ideas because you may not know what the underlying idea is, 
but if you do some computer simulations, the numbers themselves will point towards the idea. And we're, as I said, we're, there, there are basically three sec main sections in the book and an appendix. Um, we're not going to be able to get to section, uh, section three or the appendix, but several of the ideas that I had were prompted by the numbers that I saw in a computer simulation. And anybody can do this. You don't have to have a PhD in mathematics. You don't have to have a BA in mathematics. All you have to do is take, uh, you know, a six-week course in computer programming, a year of high school algebra, and you're ready to do it. So let's see. I'm, I'm happy to go a little bit over the usual runtime if we want to touch on sure. one topic in section three. Sure. And it's a topic that has a lot of popular, that has a sort of, is having a moment or had a moment within the last couple of years, and that is the hot hand. Um, for listeners interested in a deep discussion, a uh, previous uh, podcast by our colleague Paul Nepper um, uh, interviewing Ben Cohen about his book on the topic uh, would be of interest. But just could you give a brief background on the phenomenon and um, maybe this article that for a while was thought to be the last word on the subject, and then of course what your own investigations led you to understand about it. Um, okay, uh, first of all, the hot hand is something that I think probably comes up, um, at least the term comes from basketball, where obviously what you want to do is you want to score points. The way you score points is by making baskets. And every so often, a team will notice that someone's, you know, they, you'll hear them say, he's on fuego, he's on fire, because he can't miss a shot. And what basketball players do is they believe that, so, uh, that, such a, that a, when a player has the hot hand, is making a lot of baskets, you want to get him the ball so that he can shoot, because he's the one more likely to make the basket. And um, professional basketball, all basketball players believe this. And in the 1980s, an eminent psychologist, I think it was Amos Tversky, who did a lot of work on decision-making under conditions of risk, and a couple of other psychologists decided to study this. And what they did was they studied professional and amateur basketball players. And they reached the conclusion that there was no such thing as a hot hand. And Despite, you know, despite here you had a Nobel Prize winning psychologist and a couple of other really bright people saying it, basketball players continue to pass the ball to the hot hand. And my argument is that they must know something because especially the pros, the pros are being paid money depending upon how well their teams do. So I think that in that instance, I tend to think that there's some credence in it. And then about five years ago, there was a fascinating article um, that was paraphrased, although incorrectly, in the Wall Street Journal, in which what they did was they showed that there was a phenomenon involved in flipping coins, which is something that you wouldn't suspect that looks sort of like it's related to the hot hand. And um, in fact, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal about four or five years ago called The Hot Hand Theory Gets Flipped on Its Head. And it was, uh, it was regarding these particular results. And uh, I've mentioned Len Wapner before, who interested me in Blackwell's bet. He showed me this article, and I got, he and I got interested in it, and we started looking at it. And Len had been interested in another problem. Suppose you flip a coin and it lands heads. That's all you know. 
Can you say anything about the probability that it will land heads the next time? And of course, the only thing you can say is that the probability, at least that you think that you can say, is that the probability is not zero because you know that the coin landed heads at least once, so you're not looking at a two-tailed coin. Right. But can you make any other intelligent statement about this? And I started thinking about this. And so Len and I did some investigations on this. And um, to cut along, you know, to cut to the chase, I came across what I thought was a very, very intriguing result. And the result is this. You can make decisions better than the average of experts on any particular subject with a few, you know, with a few, uh, for instance, suppose you're looking at a bunch of people who are picking stocks, whether or not they will go up. And of course, these people are presumably experts, but over the long run, each one of these persons is, some of them are right 60% of the time, some of them are right 55% of the time, some of them are right 40% of the time, but that's their long-term average. You don't know what it's going to be on the next time. But if you were to take, for instance, suppose that you were to take uh, five people, one has a 60% average, one has a 55% average, one has a 50% average, one has a 45% average, one has a 40% average. So the average of these averages is 50%. In other words, if you were to take a look at, you know, take a look at their average track record, their average track record over uh, over all history would be they're 50% right and 50% wrong. Can you beat this? And it turns out that there's a mathematically credible way of doing it. And this is what the last section of the book is, uh, is geared to. The credible way of doing it is take a look at how they did on their last prediction. And just take the predictions for the, of how, the people who were successful on their last try. If you use that as your guideline, in other words, take a restricted sub-panel. Don't take all the people. Just take the people who were right on their last prediction. And take a random prediction from these people you'll do better in the long run than the average of the experts. And that's mathematically, that's, that's mathematically on solid ground thanks to something known as Jensen's inequality. Um, that's one of the few instances where the book cites something which is from sort of advanced mathematics. But when I was looking at it, it occurred to me, we know that. We, in fact, that's how we operate in life. For instance, um, I discussed, you know, if, if you take a look at what, um, what makes for successful dates, we go out on dates a second time because we had a good time the first time. We go to restaurants that serve, you know, we go to restaurants repeatedly because they keep serving us meals that we like. Um, and that's the way we make intelligent decisions. We make intelligent decisions based on our feedback of successes. And I hadn't really thought about this before I started investigating. It seems sort of natural, but if you look at it, that's what evolution is doing also. Evolution is going in the direction of what worked before. And it turns out that there's a mathematical basis for doing that. 
doing what worked before works out better than just doing stuff at random. And that may seem obvious, but it's true. It's obvious when you say it, like a lot of things, but it was profound to realize just how many, just how I've found myself in the past looking at it as um, as an unjustified assumption. So there's this pejorative term for the habit or the auto, the, the thinking of making your next bet based on what the previous outcome was, the gambler's fallacy, whether that's um, betting on streaks or betting on the reversal of streaks and and, um, and uh, re- reversion to the mean. Um, but in fact, a lot of these fallacies we think of are based on situations that involve perfectly uniform probabilities of outcomes, and the real world is very rarely like that. Oh yeah, that's, that's exactly right. In fact, when I was looking at uh, Len's question about how does a, uh, the reason that I got, went, started going down that, uh, that particular route is I couldn't ask my, <clears throat> I couldn't answer the question, um, will the next flip be heads? Maybe there's a way for mathematics to do it, but I just didn't have enough probability theory to do it. But what I could do is I could say, suppose you've got a bunch of coins in a drawer, each of which has a probability of being, uh, of, being flipped heads, and we just chose one of those coins at random. On that basis, could I make some sort of intelligent decision? And that turned out to be a problem that I could actually analyze with some degree of success. And that's what the third section of the book is. So I'm sad to omit a question that I wanted to ask about the fourth section. It does deviate a little bit in theme. (laughs) All right, all right, I'm glad to. Okay. Um, so this 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 section does deviate somewhat in theme from the rest of the book, um, but it was a really fun companion piece. Um, you introduced this section by saying that you're going to propose a bold idea to change the world for the better, and I was not expecting this to go into the field of commercial advertising, but <laughs> I would like you to state your proposal because I found it somewhat quite compelling, honestly. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I'm trying to find an advertising firm that's ready to do it. Um, but my idea is something called combinatorial commercials. And one of the, you know, one of the things that happens with commercials is even if you see a wonderful commercial, after a while it gets boring because you know what's going to happen. What makes something interesting is when you don't know what's going to happen. And so it occurred to me, uh, the example that I had was, um, suppose that a firm has a budget for 90 seconds worth of commercials. What they're probably going to do is they're probably going to do three 30-second commercials. And um, for instance, the one that I thought of is, you know, there's this uh, insurance firm that has different types of situations arising that they've insured. And after a few, you've seen them all. You've seen the, you, you know, you've seen the balloon that drops, you've seen the moose that falls on the car. After that, okay, you've seen them all. But what if you never knew what was going to happen? So my idea was this. Instead of making instead of making three 30-second commercials, make nine 10-second commercials consisting of three first parts, three second parts, and three third parts. And what I thought of is the typical James Bond mini commercial is that um, James Bond encounters an obstacle, uh, something happens, you know, the obstacle gets resolved. 
But what you do is you have three different types of obstacles, three different types of middle sections, three different resolutions, and each one of these can blend seamlessly into the other. So that what you have is, instead of having three 30-second commercials, you have essentially a choice of 27 different possible 30-second commercials. And even if you see the first two parts, you won't know what the third part will be because it's one of three. So you have this continual, each one of these commercials, until you've seen all 27, and you won't remember all 27, you'll be watching them, especially if they're reasonably well done, what's going to happen. Because it's uh, what keeps us going, what keeps us looking at commercials, other than Paris Hilton eating a cheeseburger if you're a guy, um, what keeps us... What keeps us looking at commercials is if in some way they interest us. And a few years ago, uh, during the Super Bowl, there was this charming commercial where this kid comes out in a Star Wars outfit, points his lightsaber at the car, and Dad with the remote hits the remote at the same time. And when the kid hit, hit, uh, points his lightsaber at the car, I forget what it was. The lights of the car go on and off. Okay, you see it a few times. Great. But what happens if sometimes the kid sees the windshield wipers go on, sometimes the kid sees, hears the horn blast? In other words, it's always something different. You don't know what's going to happen. And this is just a way to make a lot of different things happen. And I thought, um, I thought it wouldn't be so difficult to do in this digital age. And you can, if you do it right, you can keep people looking at commercials and presumably if you keep looking at commercials, that means that you'll be more likely to buy the product. And um, I don't know about that, but that's not, you know, that's not my problem. Uh, but I think that, uh, you know, I think the advertising industry has resolved it in favor of if you keep looking at the advertisements, you're more likely to buy the prob- product. No, I think that's right. Um, this 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 discussion actually reminded me when I was reading it of something I thought was called a combinatorial sonnet. And it took me a while to dig up this reference because I had no idea where I'd read about it before. But a poet named um, Queerness, Col- Queerness Coleman wrote, as I, I think, this 14-line sonnet, but 13 of which is lines could be arbitrarily permuted to maintain a flow of a grammatical flow. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> which I thought was quite an achievement. That's but. that's a different type of uh, uh, that's a different type of uh, combinatorics. Um, but nonetheless, yes, it, that's a tri- <laughs> to be able to do that. That's fourteen factorial different sonnets or something like that. Good God! Right. <laughs> you know, it, for some reason, it never took off as a style. But. <laughs> And, but nonetheless, it's intriguing. You know, that's one of the interesting things about uh, about the human species. We think of things to do. We do them. You don't know where they're going at the moment. But who knows? This may become an art form later on. Very I'm well sure, picked. you know, I'm sure. What about haikus? I'm sure that the first two or three haikus that were done, okay, then all of a sudden it gets inculcated and there's entire literature's worth of haikus. That, that's true. There is some arbitrariness, perhaps, to the type of um, the styles that really take off. So to wrap up a bit, I wanted to ask about a provocative proposal you make earlier in the book that I thought was worth engaging with seriously for a moment. 
Um, and I wonder if you could make the case for it here. Uh, you urge that high school students learn computer simulation rather than algebra. Um, okay. Uh, first of all, before, uh, uh, I, I think that needs to be modified very slightly. Um, okay. Because if you're going to go into one of the STEM subjects, uh, science, technology, engineering, or mathematics, algebra is the quintessential language for expressing much of the concepts. And it's impossible for me to imagine someone successfully going into this career without being comfortable with algebra. In fact, when I teach, when I teach courses uh, at the college level, such as, you know, calculus and beyond, I say to the students, algebra, in high school, algebra is a subject. Um, in college, algebra is a language. We speak it. Um, and this is true, you know, you'll see people just do algebra without even thinking about it. Nobody questions it. But that's for people who are going into the STEM subjects. For the vast majority of people, and I'd say I don't know how many people go into STEM subjects, but most people, the last time they have anything to do with algebra is when they put down their pencil on the SAT for the last time. And in addition to which, even though there are a lot of, there are a lot of mathematicians who say, well, algebra teaches you certain types of problem solving and critical thinking, I believe that's correct, but it teaches it in a very stilted environment. You're never going to run, and you know, you're never going to run in the real world. You're never going to run into a situation where you need the quadratic formula or you have to factor something. It's just not going to happen. Um, but what will happen is that you will run into problems that interest you. Some of the problems may be business oriented. Some of the problems may be something like, you know, what? How many points do you need to win? Uh, out of 100 in order to win tennis matches. But you will encounter quantitative problems throughout life. And it's much better if you can have a tool that enables you to analyze those quantitative problems. And there are two tools for that. One is arithmetic. And to me, arithmetic is the redheaded stepchild of modern education. It's gotten shoved to the side. I, uh, uh, I had a time a few years ago when I was teaching uh, when I was teaching a course, and it was a course in liberal arts mathematics. And one of the things that I do is I ask students at the beginning of the class to be familiar with certain concepts such as percentages. And I had a percentage problem, and a student came into my office, and I said, "Well, what's you know? Uh, well, we have to start by taking ten percent of one hundred and thirty-five." The girl reached for her calculator, and I said, "You don't need it." calculator to take 10% of 135. And she looked sort of embarrassed and said, I don't know how to do it. And what has happened to our education that we are teaching, you know, that we are failing to familiarize people with numbers and arithmetic. And this was written about very well by John, uh, John Allen Pauls a number of years ago, whom I've had the pleasure of interviewing. On an, uh, he wrote about something called a numeracy. And it's worse than ever. But once you get past a numeracy, um, you're going to need numbers throughout your life. It's, but you don't need algebra. So figure out a way to get people interested in numbers and get them to be comfortable with numbers. Everybody has a computer. If you learn a computer language, you learn how to analyze a problem and how to use a computer to help facilitate the solution of that problem. And 
Computers are the most wonderful tools for facilitating solutions to problems other than the human mind. Um, and that's why I think people who are not going to take, who are, you know, if you know you're not going down the STEM path, if you know, uh, uh, and learn compute, you know, learn computer programming, you'll have a wonderful time with it. It's much more valuable than learning how to play computer games. Learn computer programming. Six weeks. There are high school courses that teach you how to te- how to program a computer in basic in six weeks. And not to take away the um, there's an element in my experience of algebraic thinking that goes into the ability to program computers, especially oh, as you get into higher level code. Absolutely. Um, I don't know about higher level. Well, I don't. You know, as they say, I stop at basic. Um, Pascal, things like that. But I don't know Java, I don't know HTML, stuff like that. But yes, algebra is built into it. But what it is not so much the formalism of algebra as the fact that there's a sort of general structure to problem solving using quantitative information. And part of that quanti- you know, part of that uh, problem solving requires the use of something, a variable. And a variable in algebra is generally denoted by a letter, but in computers it's a storage location. Here's where we put the number for that. So to finally wrap up, the traditional closing question that I like to proceed with for my own, for my own interest This is your is, interview. <laughs> yes. I like to ask if there's another piece of scholarship or media that you think makes a good companion to yours. Um, wow. Okay. (laughs) That's a question. Uh, that's a question that I hadn't, um, uh, that I hadn't been asked before. And I guess what, uh, um, well, this is, this is absolutely, this is very different. What I'd like to do is I'd like to, uh, I'd like to put in a plug for what I think is one of the most important books ever written because it deals with how humanity has approached problem solving and the history of problem solving. And that's James Burke's Connections. Are you familiar with the book? I'm not. Oh, wow. Um, okay, this uh, the book and a television series written about, uh, based on it took place in the 1970s. It's the, in my opinion, it's the best, it's certainly the most fascinating nonfiction book I've ever read. What it does is it takes 10 of the great inventions of the 20th century and traces their history. Um, and it's, uh, it's a combination of history, technology, science, psychology, and what it does is it gives you an appreciation of a whole bunch of things. It gives you an appreciation of the developments of modern science. It gives you an, uh, it gives you, uh, an appreciation for how the vagaries of the right person and the right place with the right events prompt certain things to develop. And it's a wonderful, easy to read book. You don't need to know anything. Um, you you can um, and it's it's an absolute pleasure to read. And I think the reason that it's a good companion piece for this book is it gets you interested in 
what the accomplishments of our species are. And I think, I think we're an amazing species. I think humanity is an amazing, amazing species in that we're able to look at the universe and understand it. And that's what this book, you know, that's what Schrodinger's cat uh, tries to do. But it's what connections makes you really appreciate some of the things that we've done and what it took to get there and do it. And um, I, I, I don't get, you know, I don't get anything from, I wonder if James Burke is still alive. But trust me, Corey, you will not regret reading this book. That was a great sell. I will check it out. Okay. Thank you. Okay. And so finally, to close with the New Books Network traditional question, what are you working on now? Well, I do have uh, I do have a couple of projects in mind, um, but one of them uh, uh, it, one of them is I've been working with a team of people for about fifteen years to bring an invention to market, and um, hopefully we're going to do so in the next uh, in the next couple of months. And it's absolutely, you know, it's absolutely has nothing to do with anything that I've talked about. It has to do with waste disposal, believe it or not. Waste That's quite dis- a teaser. Yeah. Waste disposal is an incredibly important problem. Um, and uh, the people that I've been working with have come up with a combination mechanical, electri- uh, mechanical bacterial, and chemical process for turning organic waste, you know, the type of stuff that you throw into your garbage, into high-quality fertilizer in 45 minutes. And we have a machine that does it, and hopefully you're going to find out about it in the next few months. I will watch out for that. Okay. (laughs) Corey, take care. You too, Jim. Let me uh, just close up the episode by saying that I've been talking with James Stein, author of The Fate of Schrodinger's Cat, Using Math and Computers to Explore the Counterintuitive, published by World Scientific in 2020. James, thanks again for joining me. A pleasure.